Can anyone be found who would prefer wasting away in pain, dying limb by limb, or letting out his life drop by drop, rather than expiring once for all? Can any man be found willing to be fastened to the accursed tree, long sickly, already deformed, swelling with ugly wheels on shoulders and chest, and drawing the breath of life amid long, drawn-out agony? He would have many excuses for dying, even before mounting the cross. Seneca. Welcome, everyone. This is A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills, here with Zell and Heidi, joining us today, the Reverend David Apple, to talk about crucifixion. Gentlemen, how are you? Doing well, Willie. Good to be on with you and Zellwin. Good. Zellwin, you all right over there? I'm doing fine. Things are still in kind of in winter, but in kind of that late winter, early mud season kind of feel up here in the north. So things are are wet and kind of muddy and still a little cold on occasion, but yeah, it's home. <laughs> <laughs> David, how how is the weather there? Yeah, it's, it's uh, warm, I think, today. I don't know that it hit 80, but it's been near 80 uh, quite a few times. It'll still get a little bit chilly in the evenings, but the windows are open. The ceiling fans are in use, and uh, it's we're through the mud. It's in, I've never heard of mud season before, but I do know what you mean, Zelwyn. We're, we're through our rainy <laughs> part, and we're into... The colorful spring is coming here in Kentucky. I love all the, you know, the azaleas, the dogwoods, all that stuff is starting to pop out. So there's lots of color here. Well, be careful. Andy will outlaw you looking at foliage before too long. Oh, well, I mean, I only look through at least five panes of glass. (laughs) Well, you're not wearing a mask. What's the matter with you? Well, I mean, that's, I just assume that, Willie, come on. <laughs> it is It is in the high 70s here for the next couple of days, then back down into the 40s. So I'll have some crud going on from that, I'm sure. You know, I do want to try something new here since it is uh, our first podcast of the month. Let's take a look at the Almanac's weather and uh, let's let's see what it what it's predicting for us. So I sit kind of in between regions, and so uh, I'm going to read David's first for April, and just okay. see this is what we're expecting: average right. temperature of 53 degrees, precipitation four and a half inches, one inch above average, one to six sunny and cool, seven to nine showers and cool, ten to twelve rainy and warm, thirteen to twenty one rainy periods cool, twenty to thirty a few showers and mild. Oh, that sounds pretty good. Here, where I straddle the line between your region and another, we're expecting 46 degrees, two below average, precipitation of three and a half inches, a few showers at the beginning of the month, sunny, 13 to 23, few showers east, thunderstorms west, and the 21st to the 30th, rainy periods and cool. And to go, now let's be depressed and check out the forecast for the high plains. 47 degrees, precipitation two and a half inches. It's very dry in that desert you live in. One to seven inches of snow north, rain south, the 8th to 13th, rain and snow showers, sunny and cool. 14 to 19, rainy periods north, sunny south, mild, uh, the 20th to 23rd, showers north, sunny south, sunny, 28th to 30th, rain north and sunny south. So we'll find out towards the end of the month if that was uh, 85% correct or not. (laughs) Oddly enough, the Almanac did not foresee the plague, but that's okay. (laughs) <laughs> and and we won't get into the moon phases and planets and such because yeah. well we don't really want to get defrocked right yeah well we only so. yeah we only have we only have one hour and uh you know right. melanchthon <laughs> you, if those of you who are interested can can see what philip melanchthon thought about astrology and the the pattern of the heavenly bodies <laughs> well the, the real reason we're not talking the signs is it's just not time to plant just yet uh but okay. we're getting there it is almost good friday for potatoes though but this is true. It is true. It is. Uh, it's good potato planting weather. That's what, that's how they do it where I'm from. Um, Although, be honest, Willie, the real reason you brought out the almanac was because you just wanted to make it sound like you were doing your old weather routine from your radio days. Well, we did use the almanac there. You know, no sense in using uh, the National Weather Service or anything. <laughs> hey, if it was good enough for my grandparents, who always brought in a crop and fed thirteen kids, you know. <laughs> good enough for me that's what i say this is this is a very interesting start to crucifixion but i'm enjoying it well you know you know before uh, we watch passion of the christ you know we have to lighten it up a little bit yeah (laughs) sorry david you were saying 
Well, I just think uh, I I would be, you know, inclined as a I'm a participant here, but I'm also a listener. I would be inclined every the first podcast of the month. I think it's good for people to be prepared and know, you know, (laughs) what to expect here. Where would where would if someone say wanted to uh, look into these things, where could you give us a source for finding the, the almanac for different regions? Uh, yeah, well, there's a couple options. There's two main ones. That's the Old Farmer's Almanac and the Farmer's Almanac. Uh, Farmer's Almanac's red. Old Farmer's usually has a picture of Benjamin Franklin and its originator, Robert Thomas, on the front. Uh, you can actually pick them up at your farm stores, Walmart, bookstores, wherever they're sold. Fine books, yeah. Yeah, or even on Amazon, if that's your thing. Uh, They'll typically have a hole drilled into them so that you can hang them up in your barn or shed, wherever you want to put them. (laughs) But yeah, old farmers or farmers, either one you want to go with, both use a bit of a different uh, methodology. But, you know, there there are uh, devotees on both sides. But check out your farm store. Check out, you know, grocery stores and stuff, uh, depending on your location. If you're an urbanite, you might not be able to find these things. And so you'll have to go to Amazon. But you're used to that, aren't you? (laughs) <laughs> so, I think we better get back on the topic, though. <laughs> or we're never going to no, get. But, it. <laughs> we're never going to. Well, get hey, we're, we're just giving them the gardening episode they've wanted all this time. Uh, so anyway, uh, yeah, but that is where you would find the almanac. Uh, you can also go to their various websites like almanac.com and uh, check it out there. You know, it's uh, by direct. Thank you. This has been edifying. <laughs> well, I'm glad. Um, <laughs> this has been a word fitly spoken. If you <laughs> has been a word fitly spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out at almanac.com. Oh man. Anyway, all right. Well, well, gentlemen, we have come here today to talk about the crucifixion and why? Why are we doing it today? We are recording this. I don't know when it's scheduled for release. I assume probably Monday Thursday, right? Uh, but we are recording this the during Holy Week here. So obviously, for the three of us, this is in the forefront of our minds. That's probably true most of the time, but especially during the week this this week here, I think we're all thinking more and more about the crucifixion and about what Christ endured, what he suffered for our salvation. So we thought it'd be good to uh, delve into this a little bit more, kind of look at some of the the background to crucifixion and discuss these things. Very good. Now, the crucifixion is an image that is, of course almost exclusively identified with the Christian religion now, although it might not have been that way at the time of Jesus. Crucifixion is a very common method of both tor- torture and execution. And so for the ancient world, what does the crucifixion conjure in the mind? Yeah, the crucifixion was, if you look into the origins of it, it's actually kind of hard to to determine exactly who started it. It seems to be something that just about everybody practiced in some form or fashion. But I think, like you said, the the idea here, and this will be quite obvious to our listeners, but or it should be, the idea is torture and shame and punishment for criminals. So you could, you can read uh, examples of conquered peoples being being crucified, but usually and especially when we think of like the Roman use of crucifixion, this was part of the whole judicial system. And we, we can get into the various kinds of people who would receive this sentence, but that was, that was its main practice. Was it, This is the ultimate punishment, the maximum penalty that you can receive. So what does it look like then? What is, what is a crucifixion for those who might not know? Well, the crucifixion in its most basic sense is to take a criminal, take someone who has been condemned to die upon it, and to attach them by nails to either a pole or a pole with a crossbeam. I mean, I, there's there's examples of both within uh, Roman history. Basically, just a way of elevating the the one who has been crucified up off the ground using these nails as a way of holding them there. In a, in a kind of agony that is literally gives us the word excruciating, you know, literally out of the cross. So it, it, yeah. was, it was such a unique form of death and such a unique form of torture that they had to use the word itself as a way of describing the pain that the, the one crucified felt. 
there were there are this is a good thing to bring out Zell. when if when you do look back the you know the the standard image that we have is the cross with the cross beam you know the the pole with the beam across and of course the hands of Christ affixed to the the crossbar there and that I think was probably the normal way but you can and uh, if you no Jehovah's Witnesses, or uh, there are some people who insist that no, it wasn't a cross beam, but he was just nailed to a pole. You'll also see sometimes in art, you'll see the use of rope to kind of tie the person to the cross. And I think, I think in just in my kind of looking into this, there are some examples of that, but it's pretty rare. Usually there, it was nails into the hands. And to be honest, the, there is not exactly a fixed form, if you read the different Roman accounts, the idea was just to fix somebody up to the wood in a very shameful way. And so it wasn't like it was a standard. There probably were like usual practices, but it was kind of up to the soldiers or the people who were uh, performing the crucifixion exactly what pose they wanted to put a person in. Right. Well, I mean, you have the accounts of the apostles too, you know, of St. Andrew, for example, supposedly having been crucified on an X-shaped cross, you know, with two poles, or St. Peter, according to tradition, having been crucified upside down. So it's not just a, like you say, it's not just one particular form. There was a variety of things going on here. Well, let me ask you this, uh, David, who in their right mind would think of such a thing? rulers, tyrants, right? I mean, people who, who want to, you think of, of the power of the, of the crucifixion. It's, it's not just powerful as a way to punish someone, although it certainly is, but it's also powerful in, um, if you're like, for instance, with the Romans, if you want to maintain law and order and you want to make an, an example of someone, you know, a rebel, let's say, I can't think of a better way to make an example than through execution by crucifixion. I mean, it just, it so clearly communicates the message that if you're in charge, you want communicated, which is don't do what this guy did. Right. So, I mean, it would be an effective deterrent. We're kind of away from punishment, you know, as deterrent in our society. It's something that I wanted to emphasize too, is that crucifixion is not designed to be a method of, of executing somebody quickly. It's deliberately meant to be a slow, painful, draw this out as long as we can kind of death. And so that's right. why... I the, mean, that's why the thieves' legs are broke. Because right. they need to speed up the process, right? And we, we'll have to yeah. talk about the mechanics of, you know, why that makes a difference here in just a little bit. But, you know, like, like you say, this idea of a deterrent, you know, the, these conquered, subjugated peoples, especially criminals, being crucified in this way and being put to death in this way really is a way of saying, if you don't want to die in this fashion, yeah, don't do what this guy did, because look at how much he's suffering over several days, you know, what, three, four or more, usually. Right. Unfortunately, we got infected by Quakers in America. And so we have, (laughs) we kind of lost that, (laughs) that, that idea has kind of gone, gone away. And this just turned into the Quaker episode, but go on. Well, I mean, it, it is interesting how even though, you know, they would say uh, crucify large numbers of people, it still didn't quash all rebellion. Right. Right. The Jews could rebelled more than yeah. more than once. And yet still, you have to think your average person is going to look at that and go, OK, maybe I maybe I don't want that to happen to me. And and then maybe they wouldn't. That's not endorsing yeah. the practice by any means, but it may well have been affected effective regarding its intended purpose. Right, right. And I, if you just kind of look back biblically, let's just stay within the, the biblical world, you have, you have a, an almost, almost an example of crucifixion in the Old Testament. You guys can tell me if you think this counts as crucifixion. When Saul is killed, what's the mountain he dies on? Mount Gilboa, right? right. He dies at the top of Mount Gilboa. And then the Philistines take his body and they nail it to the city wall. Remember this? And so there's And there's other examples of this from uh, the Roman writings where it really wasn't that important to them whether they were alive or dead before they were put up on the cross, because that was really only part of it was the execution. And but the public shame and the public display was the other factor here. And that's what we're discussing right now is that that was in the mind of, you know, the the executor, that was part of the power of crucifixion was that it 
communicated a message of don't do this. Well, I think you also get a little bit of that public shame coming into effect here when you realize, well, I mean, when you look at the crowds who are jeering Jesus, and we're told that the criminals also jeer him as well, you know, they're, they're abusing him, they're saying all kinds of nasty things toward him. This is also because this is still back in the days, you know, which didn't change until quite recently. You know, there's the Quakers again, probably, uh, where people would actually attend public executions you know, and they would actually witness these things as kind of uh, almost the way that we do a sporting event. So, I mean, we might think of that as being kind of morbid now, but that was just part of what, what happened. You know, you, you went out and you saw the execution and you watched it happen. And so you just kind of abused the one who was being crucified. Yeah. So you, you bring up a good, a good part of the Roman practice here, Zellin, which was to do this in a very public place. So you think of Christ's death. He's on Golgotha, right? The place of the skull. And it was, it must have been the, a notorious spot where people, that was where crucifixions happened. And it was purposely that way. It, they wanted it to be public and not just happening, you know, in a quiet, in a basement somewhere where nobody could witness it. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's an ugly way to die. It really is. And I, I, I do think we should take the time to talk about, you know, the actual mechanics of it, but that would probably be something for the other side of the break. So, Willie, what, what do you want to talk about before we get to the break? Well, let's see. So if we start with, say, the Persians, who may have started this all, and then we go on up through some other societies, the Romans, though, really made this into their, would you say this is fair, made it into their signature kind of thing at least at least they perfected the process and so yeah, i think so so how might the romans have perfected it then they they perfected i mean this is part of the you know roman law and order and the pax romana like this is i don't know the um the ugly underbelly of the pax romana is that part of the way you maintain law and order is through is not just by saying hey let's all just get along but you have to have penalties that that continue to perpetuate the order that you want, right? And so the Romans are the ones who really kind of get this down to a step-by-step process. And uh, and usually that process included with the trial, there would be flogging. So in the, the quote that I read from Seneca, he talks about the wheels that a person would have on their shoulders and their chest. That would come from the lashing that a person would receive. And we know in the Gospels, you actually have the account of Christ being flogged, right? And that was that was the way that the Romans um, did this. So flogging, the carrying of, of someone's own cross, especially if it was a cross with a cross beam, that's all part of the Roman, I don't know, the, the desire to have everything down to a science. And then, you know, putting the nails into the hands, the nails into the feet, and, uh, and leaving a person to hang there uh, suspended in midair. Well, we've got more to talk about crucifixion. We'll get to the specific mechanics because we know you're all waiting with bated breath right after the break. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. The Word of God is the center of our faith life. Join us every Thursday for a new podcast available on iTunes and your favorite podcasting app. Follow us on Twitter at WordFitly. Check us out on Facebook, facebook.com slash WordFitly. And check out our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. We thank you for listening and stay tuned for more WordFitly Spoken. Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi and David Appelt talking about the crucifixion. So we had some good discussion in the first segment. And now, David, why don't you take us a little bit deeper into the mechanics of crucifixion? 
Yeah, the uh, the mechanics of crucifixion, some of our listeners, probably many of you have had this experience of hearing or maybe reading for yourself one like a a doctor kind of explain how crucifixion actually kills someone, right? So there's there's a lot of parts to this whole thing and they all add up together in this agonizing way. And I think it's I think it's helpful for us especially as we think of Christ's death, you know, the the goriness of it, I suppose, can be overwhelming, but there is some value just to thinking through like just how much Christ suffered and what what the suffering entailed. So we wanted to to kind of go through the medical explanation of what would happen to a, a body as it was being crucified. And we we talked about this a little bit in the earlier episode, but um, for the Romans especially, or not earlier episode, but in the other segment, for the, the Romans especially, the, the crucifixion follows a flogging. So um, you can't be fully crucified until you receive a good flogging first. And so the back and the chest especially are flogged, and the blood begins to flow here, and you get the, you know, just the breaking down of a person's will and and energy, all of that is drained out through the the flogging process. I don't I don't want to go into gory detail, but uh, um, Zelwyn, I don't know if you you want to add anything on how the flogging happened. Well, I mean, it's just probably with the whole thing, it's worth emphasizing that Roman soldiers knew what they were doing. You know, this isn't like a inexperienced group where they're just trying to figure out what to do or they're just kind of making it up on the spot. This would have been a common, regularly kind of practiced punishment, you know, carried out by the soldiers, and they wouldn't have shown him much mercy either while they're whipping him. I mean, you get a you get a flavor of that when they put a crown of thorns on his head and, and you know, mm-hmm. put him in the purple robe and then mock him mercilessly. So they don't, they're not being nice about this. They're not looking at this as a, oh, poor Jesus kind of thing. They probably would have seen it as a kind of sport. So it... it yeah, I mean, we don't need to go into specific details on the flogging, but we we do want to emphasize that they're not. I mean, they're they're carrying out their work as as ruthlessly and as carefully as they can. Yeah. So this um, again, uh, it's kind of interesting to when you go back into the the prophets in the Old Testament. You know, you get the passages like Isaiah, who talks about by his stripes we are healed. Mm-hmm. You you wonder like did was Isaiah would he have been familiar with the whole process of crucifixion? And that's what we, we mentioned this a little bit in the, the first segment, like crucifixion was not a com- certainly wasn't a common Jewish way of executing. They had other ways, first and foremost, is stoning, right? But the groups around the Jews, the Assyrians knew crucifixion, the Persians, the Babylonians, like this was not, it wasn't that the Romans first invented it. So it is possible that Isaiah knows and has at least heard of the practice of crucifixion. Even if he hasn't, that's not the purpose of our of our episode here. But it's just interesting to me to consider, you know, when he talks about the stripes that the servant of the Lord is going to receive, that that could he could very well have known fully what a crucifixion was like and how this flogging process actually worked. It's certainly possible. I mean, when Isaiah is describing the suffering servant in Isaiah 52 and 53, I mean, he is describing someone who is undergoing a tremendous amount of agony. So does he have it in mind? I don't know. Maybe. I mean, it's it's certainly an interesting thought. Yeah, the whether he did or not, the spirit of the Lord <laughs> certainly does sure. have this in mind. So, <laughs> But then, okay, so you got the flogging, and then... The carrying of the of the the cross beam, the cross piece in the cross, was also a common part of crucifixions. So uh, we mentioned before the the public shame that's heaped on the person who is being crucified would be especially prominent as he is is carrying his cross from wherever he's flogged to wherever he's going to be crucified. And so you can think of of Jesus. This is described a little bit. In the in the Gospels, you have some of the the women who are following him. You have some of his his disciples who are weeping and mourning because they see the suffering Christ is going through. 
But there were probably also those who looked on and were mocking him and, and deriding him as he's carrying this cross or carrying the, the cross beam anyways. And again, this is all part of just kind of slowly breaking down and slowly draining the life out of a person. So the energy required, whatever amount of energy is left in a person after the flogging is probably going to be used up in carrying this heavy piece of wood. And then eventually you get to the site of the crucifixion and you have the nails in the hands and the feet, and then just the long process of hanging there on the cross. Yeah, carrying the crossbeam makes me think of, you know, like if a parent goes and tells a child to go cut their own switch so they can, you know, be beaten with it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's the same concept, you know, to intensify the the shame of it, to intensify the pain of it, you know, making and and you're absolutely right and also in carrying the thing just as a way of of getting him to be physically tired by the time he actually is crucified. Which we see, in fact, when Jesus is no longer able to carry his cross. I mean, he's just so physically drained because of the beating and because of carrying this giant crossbeam that he, he, they basically have to make someone else do it. Yeah. Right. Yeah, they compel the guy, Simon of Cyrene, yep. uh, to do He's it. one of the good ones. Now, <laughs> yeah, now he, he has sons too, Rufus and Alexander, but... um when when Jesus gets to the site of the crucifixion, and if you can picture the the nails in the hands, the nails in the feet, Zellan, I don't know if you want to talk, there's different theories about where they would have put the nails. I don't know if you guys have any particular, you know, skin in the game on that one. <laughs> As to where the nail actually was in the hand or further down the wrist or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Right, I, right. I don't think it makes that big of a difference. Yeah, either way, you're trying to you're trying to fix a person to the wood. Well, right? it's it, it's one of those things where a lot of people like to put on their monocle and top hat and be like, "Well, actually, all of the classic depictions of the crucifixion <laughs> are wrong." So, so it was actually the wrist. And then a guy in a bigger monocle and a bigger top hat will be like, "Well, the Greek word can actually include all of the hand down to the <laughs> middle of the wrist." And it's just like, "Bro, come on." So that, that, it is an interesting debate, <laughs> yeah. but I do think it was born out of that. Like we, we have this obsession with uh, hating classic Christian art in the modern world and just want to nitpick it every way we can. Oh, I bet you <laughs> thought that Jesus was light complected, huh? Says the guy who never saw an Levantine. And and so you're, you're just it's 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 just kind of one of those things. And I, I am glad you brought it up because I do think it's at least interesting. You know, how do they do it? And then you get a depiction like The Passion of the Christ from uh, Mel Gibson, uh, our personal sponsor here at uh, Word Fitly. And <laughs> he kind of splits the difference, right? He has him tied on the crossbeam and, and then with a traditional nail through the palm. So, but it is interesting. And it is something that is worth talking about because it does come up fairly yeah. often. I believe what i've heard the debate is that if if the if the nail goes through the palm which is mm -hmm. you know like the sign language sign for jesus that the the hand there could not actually physically support the weight of the body right right and maybe that's true my, <laughs> my monocle i just don't wear that one so i can't i don't know i don't want to weigh in on right. that right even though that. you know but regardless, i mean even though john 20 does say if i don't see the marks uh, of the nails in his hands yeah, but but go. then you know Psalm twenty two, <laughs> they've pierced my hands and my right, feet. Right, but then then we yeah. just broaden the definition of hands. Well, he skinned his elbow, and in Greek, you know, some guy probably misspoke and and made that into a hand. <laughs> no, it, I mean it is it is a good point, if only because, like you say, there is this kind of debate, and some people use it as a way of mocking the crucifixion. But I think either way, regardless of where we put the nail. We have to realize that this is not a pleasant thing. I mean, can we all no, agree you don't, on you that? Don't want right. to be, yeah, yeah. You don't want a, a nail anywhere on your person. I don't even like guys with earrings, you know, so it's just not good. <laughs> well, and especially because, you know, these nails are mostly akin to like railroad spikes in size. I mean, they're not these little like they're not like a 16 penny nail that you build a house with. You know, this is this is a gigantic ancient nail. You know, not exactly straight either. So this would have been a pretty. I mean, I'm not trying to be too gory about it, but I'm just saying this is. Well, get, well, yeah. getting into typology, no, if you're going to rebuild a temple, what kind of nail are you going to use, right? 
Right. <laughs> I've given some some guy out there an idea now, and I'm sorry. Somebody <laughs> just found their good Friday sermon. So <laughs> uh, those were covered in gold, Willie. Those were golden. That's nails. right. It was so, the, the the very um, nails in the Paschal candle. <laughs> yes. Oh, beautiful. Thank you. Our liturgical theologian, Willie, speaks. Great. Where were, okay, so you get the nails. So then the question becomes, well, okay, so what, what does a person finally die of? Or what, what happens then once a person is hoisted up on the cross? So you get a person suspended up there. Actually, the then the long and you know, there's different accounts of how long this happened with Jesus. What it's the sixth hour to the ninth hour, right? So he's there for three hours. But we know that 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 was fairly unusual that that a person would die that quickly because of what has to happen to the to the two men on either side of him. Their legs have to be broken. So Zelwyn, give us a little bit about how what would it actually kill? Yeah, a Zelwyn, you've broken a lot of crucified. legs in your day. <laughs> and I seem to be the one going for all the gore tonight. So basically, the position that a person is on a cross, if you think of the way you normally breathe, like how you expand outward to breathe, basically when the, the cross, the position that the cross pushes you in, you actually have to exert physical effort in order to breathe. Okay. Every breath that you take involves like pushing yourself up by your feet, which again, remember, you have a nail stuck through stuck through your uh, feet or stuck through your ankles or wherever it was. And so you have to push yourself up on that nail in order to be able to even breathe. And so finally, what kills a person on the cross is not so much the pain and the torture, but in the fact that you just become so weak, you are no longer able to breathe and you suffocate to death. Right. Which is which is why the legs are broken, because by breaking the legs, they're no longer able to support themselves. They're no, and thus they're no longer able to breathe. And thus their their death comes much more quickly. So that a lot of times and I think in Christian art, you see this, too. There's a, there's either a little almost like a seat. I mean, it's not really a seat underneath the person, but a little a little ledge. something on the cross. So that a yeah, a little ledge. Thank you. And sometimes it's depicted at at the feet of Christ in the on a crucifix. Probably most common was that there was a little bit of a seat, a little place where a person, you know, I, it's not like anybody's relaxing when they're up there, but they did, the Romans did want to draw it out. And so they weren't, you know, they were not going for sudden and immediate execution here. They were going for long, drawn out public display and so they would put this seat there to intentionally offer some kind of support, the the very minimal support, so that the process would be drawn out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and we and like I say, you see that with the breaking of the legs in the the criminals, so that it sped up. But you also see in Pilate's surprise that Jesus has already died, that Jesus is in fact an unusual yeah. case. You know, this should have taken a lot longer. And Pilate is kind of surprised, like, wow, did, did he really die this quickly? No, it's it's a it's a grisly thing, to be sure. I mean, I don't there's there's no two ways around it. It's not the way that any of us would want want to go. And then you put the sins of the world on your shoulders on top of that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. The physical agony and also the uh the intense I, I don't know how to describe it, mental agony that Jesus would have been undergoing. The, the agony of soul, right? right. I think in one of the one of the questions that uh, kept kind of surfacing in my mind as we kind of did the, the prep for the episode here, as much prep as we ever do, <laughs> um, is just why, you know, why is it that crucifixion is the fitting way that the Son of God dies, right? That he doesn't, you know, he's not stoned. There's many times in the Gospels where they pick up stones to stone him and he hides himself, right? But it's it's finally crucifixion that is the fit and appropriate end. I mean, this is Christ prophesies this himself, what, at least three times. And you have the the Old Testament references that we've mentioned a few times. So this was fixed in the will of God. And I think when you look back and and some of what we're trying to do here is just to hopefully give some some answer to that question. Why was crucifixion the 
appropriate way for Christ to die. And it's not just the intense suffering, but that is a part of the whole thing. Because like Willie said, the physical sufferings that he goes through matches the the suffering that he is going through in his soul, right? As he's being as he's bearing the sins of the whole world. Can I just say before we really start digging into that question, though, that when we're dealing with the question of, you know, the, how appropriate the crucifixion is, we cannot forget that this is entirely by God's intention and Jesus dies entirely of his own will. Okay. And as Jesus says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. In, in a re- very real sense, God has chosen the cross as the means of his death. God has willed this to be the thing that he that he wants to happen. This is not just Jesus having a very bad Friday and getting the very worst thing that the Romans could deal out. This is the will of God from all eternity, right? <laughs> yeah. No, right. And and I think as the author of of history, right, that he all of this stuff, these historical details about how crucifixion developed and how it was viewed in the Roman world, all of those details are, you know, part of God's plan, right, for what his son would would do to save us. And so these looking into the historical details is not just a matter of kind of discovering some neat oddities, but it's it's all part of the plan and purpose of how God would save the world. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, raising up the Persians, you know, for, if they were the first ones to do it, raising yeah. up the Romans, raising up Augustus, you know, raising up Titus later for that matter. I mean, it's all it's all there. And now this just turned into an episode on yeah. Providence. We're just going off on all kinds of trails, aren't we? Right. Well, you know, it's all all wrapped up together. And, then, and even couple that with how do we even begin to describe what is happening here as far as Christ taking on the sins of the world? It's a difficult mystery to fathom, not just the mechanics of it, but I mean, the the awe of it, right? The magnitude of it and the significance of it is something that we can't really describe with words. Um, I mean, you know, even in the scriptures, we see Christ's bloody sweat, right? We we see him lamenting from the cross, and yet uh, it's just not a type of suffering that we can really, really fathom, unless we go to hell. Well, yeah, but I mean, even and even with that too, you're dealing with the agony of the son being forsaken by the father, right? You know, right. Can we we how can we even begin to understand that? In any in any appreciable sense, that Jesus is being entirely sent out into the wilderness, you know, entirely, entirely. I don't, how do you want to put it? Rejected entirely. Well, yeah. I mean, we, we we live largely with a Christian ethos in the world today that pretends as if we're not. We can't be alienated from God, so we don't even think about it. Right. We just sort of sin and go, "Oh, it's okay. He, he's cool. I read the Prodigal Son." A couple times growing up, we're, we, God's cool, and and so we don't even fathom the agony of being separated from God, and then you know couple that with you know the the relationship between the Father and the Son, and then you got the devil over here mixed up in all of this too. It's uh, it's just a tremendous thing. It's the reason why we still ponder on it two thousand years later, and we, and we just have to accept that our understanding is ultimately insufficient. And maybe that's just because we're fallen humans. In fact, I'm quite sure that it is. And and so, you know, maybe in our own lamentations, as we begin to rediscover biblical repentance, as we begin to really fathom where we place ourselves in relation to God based upon how we uh, conduct ourselves and where we put our faith, maybe as God begins to soften our hearts and wait and awaken us, and excuse me, enlighten us, then uh, perhaps we can understand Christ's cross even just a small amount more. I don't know. Yeah, I hope so. Well, we are at a break. We've got to take one. It's time. So we'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. (laughs) 
All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Visit our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. There you'll find new articles each week on the Bible and other topics. You can also join us on Facebook at WordFitlyPosting. That's WordFitlyPosting with a P to discuss anything you've read or heard. Thank you for listening. We'll be right back with more WordFitly Spoken. Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi. Joining us, the Reverend David Apple, and we're talking about the cross of Christ, specifically the crucifixion and its mechanics and the history surrounding it. So, David, for whomst was crucifixion traditionally reserved? If you've ever seen the movie Spartacus, you have the great scene of Spartacus crying as all his fellow slaves are being crucified and saying, I am Spartacus, right? But that there is some historical validity to that, whether Spartacus ever happened or not. I guess we can leave up to everyone to decide. Do we have an official position on Spartacus, guys? <laughs> well, we'll discuss that in the Stanley Kubrick Illuminati episode. Okay, good. Right. That's coming. Uh, that'll be a seven-part series. Right. So the crucifixion as a slave's penalty, this was the Romans did not crucify their own citizens, or they... I, I can't think of any examples where they do. And oftentimes it is reserved for those who are slaves. So you can think of Paul about to receive the lashing at the hands of the Romans. And he says, but I'm a Roman citizen. And all of a sudden they realize, oh, we've done something that we shouldn't do, right? So if a, if a Roman can't receive a lashing, he also certainly isn't going to be crucified because that was the maximum penalty. But slaves could be crucified. And I think that just a, a good place to go for this, you can go to Philippians 2 and you can read the Carmen Christi there and you can see the connection there, right? He, be, he, how does it go? He was born in our likeness, became a servant and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I think there is a connection there in that passage between Christ's position as our servant and also his death as the you know the penalty that was reserved for not not entirely for slaves but it was oftentimes the penalty applied to slaves or servants yeah we're a long ways from the days of caracalla and uh, full citizenship for all men within the roman empire you know it's a very limited class of people who have citizenship but they have a distinct number of privileges which included you know being you know, exempt from these kinds of extreme punishments. Well, you you even have some, I can't remember if it's uh, Cicero or, or Seneca who, <laughs> who says, look, we are such generous people. We would never crucify our own citizens. We let them choose their own form of execution. <laughs> and uh, the, the little quote that I read at the beginning was basically him saying, and no one would ever choose to be crucified because it's so, you know, so, so torturous, no one would choose this. We have other, other ways. We don't have much like that left in the world. I think in Utah, you can still choose a firing squad. <laughs> Do they give you a choice between like a uh, firing squad and what's the other, is, are, is there another uh, I would, option? I, I would guess, in, 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 I would guess injection, maybe electric chair. Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe they just tie a cinder block around you and throw you into Salt Lake. I don't know. If you do know yeah. the other alternative methods, drop us a line. Yeah, I mean we don't we don't have we're we're a long way from the Roman ideal, and that's an interesting topic too. You know, to what degree was it was Roman justice actually metered out? It probably depended largely upon the Senate and the emperor, just to, you know, depending on when when you're there in Roman history. To say nothing of giant wolves. It is interesting. I mean, this concept of Roman justice does come up quite frequently in the New Testament. So it's not insignificant. So that's why we Roman post a lot here, because it's kind of central yeah. to understanding. It's, it's, it's an interesting thing. There was a lot of time spent on second century Judaism 
or as a lot of people confuse it with uh, medieval Judaism. And then people want to ignore the Roman context of it. But but Rome is this big umbrella over top of the New Testament narrative. And it, and it extends really from the first gospel, uh, which is Matthew, uh, all the way to uh, Revelation. And so I, I don't know. I just like uh, more Roman, more Romans episodes is what I'm saying, yeah. guys. Yeah, I think when, the, and the more you you look into this history, you see like, this is what, it especially helps with the epistles, right? Because you see mm-hmm. Paul there talking to certainly the Greek world, but the Greeks are also at this point under Roman power. And so the way the Romans think about things is probably the way most of those first Gentile believers thought about things. And mm-hmm. for crucifixion, if you're worshiping you know, the son of God who was crucified, think about what this, you know, the, the other examples of crucifixion you see around you are slaves, right? And so you see your, your Lord and savior is crucified in this very, uh, in this way that is often associated with that of a slave. And so the connection between, you know, the servant of the Lord in Isaiah, the connection with Philippians, he became a servant, Take, took on the form of a servant and is crucified in the, you know, the execution of a servant. I think it's all, all these things fit. You start to see how they, they are tied together. Makes me think of that famous picture or graf- a piece of graffiti. You probably know which one I'm referring to depicting a crucified man with the head of a donkey. And yes. it said, and the, the Greek inscription on it says, Alexander worships his God. You know, it's obviously an anti-Christian piece of uh, graffiti from a very early period. And I think it shows very, very much and very clearly the the shame that, at least in the Roman eyes, that this would have involved. You know, how could mm-hmm. you worship uh, someone who was so debased, someone who was so, you know, low in society? You know, it just doesn't seem right. Yeah, this is this is why the message of the cross, like the 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 reality of the crucifixion and that the son of god is crucified is fool it's foolishness it's folly to the greek it doesn't make any why would you worship someone who was crucified and why is it a stumbling block to the jews then well to, uh because for the jews um not only do you have obviously the i think the jews were often influenced by the the roman way of thinking but within the jewish mind you have passages from the old testament like Deuteronomy 23, maybe that's the only one. But Deuteronomy 23, Paul quotes this in Galatians, that those who hang on a tree are cursed by God. Right, and just so we're clear here, um, we're for the listeners, we're talking about 1 Corinthians one twenty three. So we're not just, you know, coming down hard on two ethnicities here. <laughs> it's actually in the, it's actually what the Bible says. Oh, Foolishness I see to the Greeks, yeah, right. stumbling block to the Jews, 1 Corinthians yeah. uh, one twenty three. Yeah, so the 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 folly of it is that you know this is the way that slaves die to the Greek and uh, to the the stumbling block for the Jews is that how could how could someone who ended up being crucified how could he possibly be blessed by God right how could he possibly be a prophet let alone be you know the second person of the Trinity or or however they might have said it or um, or just Nicaea. or just the King of Israel. You know, maybe yeah, to put it go. in much more, you know, second, uh, early, you know, that second temple Judaism kind of thing. This idea of how could the king who was supposed to, you know, be the king of Israel, who was supposed to sit on the throne of David, how could he be this man crucified, so, cursed by God, all of these sorts of things? So, so let me throw this question out to you, gentlemen. Understanding that that idea, that concept of Jesus, that judgment placed upon him by the Jews still stands today. And, uh, you know, you can read the Talmud, you can see what they think at that time. On up to this day, uh, the person of Christ is ridiculed. So if, if, if these attitudes are persisting among people in Judaism, then what of the pagan world today? What of the non-believing world? How do they perceive the crucifixion in our current environment? Um, well, I don't, obviously you don't have the same kind of Roman view of crucifixion because you don't have, I mean, we've talked, we've referenced this a number of times, the death penalty is kind of going out of style just in and of itself, let alone something like crucifixion. I would, 
I don't know. I would I would guess that it would be seen as you know a disappoint just a disappointment. Like his life ended up in this disappointing fashion. Well, I mean, even within Roman history, you know, as as the Romans become you know, Christianized, I do think you see this shifting of how we view the cross in general. So I really do think that in the the current context, an unbeliever is going to have a very difficult time separating crucifixion from Christianity in general. Whereas, you know, so so much of the offense of the cross is the offense of Jesus rather than the offense of the punishment itself. You know, we've had 20 centuries of of Christian kind of romanticizing the crucifixion. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I just mean we've taken a lot of the sting out of it, which is why I think we have to talk in such stark terms about the horror of it and about what it all entailed so that we kind of can start to appreciate in at least a little bit more, in at least a little depth, how the first century people would have actually viewed it. Yeah. Adam would be a good one to have on to talk about, you know, that the cross is a revelation of, it's certainly a revelation of God's love. I, <laughs> I'll just tell a quick story. I remember I was looking through a church directory and it had pictures of their stained glass windows, right? And so one of the stained glass windows was a cross and it said the the symbol of love or the ultimate symbol of love or something like that. And so that's an example there of what you're talking about, Zelwyn. We, we romanticize the cross and it's not wrong to do it because it is the manifestation of the depth and width and breadth and height or however those go together of God's love, right? But it's also, that would be a meaningless kind of love if it wasn't at the same time a manifestation of God's wrath. And we touched on this at the very end of the last segment, but it's good to bring up here. This is where that that Galatians passage is so fruitful to think about and really reflect on, he became a curse to redeem us from the curse. So cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. Like that really is true. That's not, the Jews aren't wrong to see that Christ was bearing the curse. The problem is that they don't see that as substitutionary, right? It's not a vicarious kind of a thing. And it's just, that's the end of the story for Jesus. Of course, they don't believe in the resurrections, but I think it's it is helpful for us to to consider the detail and we said before we don't want to be overly gory but you do have to you do have to reckon with the fact that this was brutal right the the way that people died by crucifixion was not just another kind of death it was the ultimate way of dying and that's what our lord endures and that physical thing also then gives us what the appropriate connection for thinking about, you know, the suffering of his soul in the forsakenness of the father. Yeah, no, that's, that's well put. And and just as a way of kind of further emphasizing my point too, just to show how much we've kind of have rosy views of the cross nowadays and need to regain some of what you were talking about, David, you know, we, we have crosses in terms of like jewelry and stuff, and we consider it to be very beautiful you know, it's something that we can adorn ourselves with. You know, we think of it as a very pretty kind of symbol, whereas we would probably turn back in horror if somebody had like, I don't know, noose earrings or something like that, you know, or wore yeah, a noose right. around their neck. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> we've, we've completely softened the cross, which is why we can view it in this kind of uh, cuddly kind of way, which is entirely what it was not. Well, all right, guys. Um Zellin just became an iconoclast. So where do we go from here? <laughs> uh, no, I, well, I, I like mean, crosses. Don't get me wrong. But anyway. Yeah. Well, I mean, and uh, yeah, and that, but this is something, I mean, you, you do hit upon something though, that there's nothing wrong with wearing a cross around your neck or a crucifix or anything like that, but they're meant to be worn intentionally. It's kind of like all the ghetto guys wearing rosaries as jewelry now. Not a papist, but. That's not the proper way to use a rosary. It's the same right. thing. It's the same thing with the, with the crucifix. Uh, the minute that we start using it as a prop, or merely as decoration, you know, or merely as some kind of signal to the Calvinists that you're not one of them, or something like that, it's the same thing with with, with icons or any other religious imagery. Once we take away the good purposes that these things have, 
then they can become idols or they can, and if not idols, at least they can become vain. Right? So uh, a crucifix is meant to make us think about what guys? The cross of Christ. Yeah. (laughs) It's meant Christ's passion. And uh, just like any icon, we'll have a specific thing that it's meant to make you focus on or any piece of, of good religious art. Apologies to Thomas Kincaid or whomever. Harder to do with landscapes. Put them. Those are decoration. Those are decorative, and there's nothing wrong with them for, for decoration. A tasteful landscape. Hey, whatever. But anyway, but yeah, once we've once we've taken our religious symbols and made them just into something sort of vain or gaudy or showy, then we've forgotten the reason why we have symbols in the first place. Why we have art in uh, the, the first place, and and how much more important is it with the symbol that has come universally to represent our faith and our Lord Jesus Christ? How much more diligently should we seek to protect those symbols from abuse? Again, we're not doing, we're not going radical reformation here or anything and smashing them. That's not the way we do it, but we, uh, we recover them and recover the right use or retain the right use as we can. I think that's that, you know, the recovery of some of the, the, I don't, Horror is not the word that I want to use here, but it's the one that comes to mind. The horror or the shock, the stumble, the cross remains a stumbling block, and not just because of what it represents or something, but because of of what a cross is used for. And um, that's what we're that's all we're trying to get at here is to recover something of the force that seeing a cross would have on a Roman mind, on a Jewish mind, on an early Christian mind, and we want. We want that same thing to be in our minds. And it's in our hymns. It's in our prayers. Let me never pass across unheeding, you know, breathing no repentant sigh. Like there should be some kind of response to seeing a cross that's not just, isn't that a pretty thing? You know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, maybe maybe there is um, virtue in just the simple wooden cross or wooden crucifix versus um, some gold adorned one. Nothing necessarily wrong with either one, but the starkness. Yeah, you can see value in each. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just the starkness in one. I mean, really, they, they honestly do just become kind of, I don't know, props, really, for some people. And that's not good. This isn't a vampire movie. This is the faith we're talking about. <laughs> you know, this is the, this yeah. is man's salvation here. And and so we shouldn't treat it as juju. You know, it's not it's not magic. At the same time, you know, it's it's not something to be treated superstitiously, but it's also not something to just be carelessly tossed aside. And so I didn't mean to go on a discourse about art, but I kind of like it. It's our podcast, no, it's, so whatever. It's, no, it's good. And <laughs> I think I think if nothing else, all, what all this should emphasize is the, the appropriateness, the deliberateness with which God chose the cross. And maybe maybe this will just kind of be my my parting thoughts here. I mean, you can do with it do with it what you will, but you know, God chooses the cross. Jesus goes willingly to the cross as the one bearing the curse, as the one who is being forsaken by God, as the one who is bearing our sins into the wilderness. And he chooses the cross precisely because it embodies all of those things. You know, this this separateness, this foreignness, this brutality of it, all of it comes together to present a death of Christ, you know, the death of Christ as being that which was done for us, but in the way of that kind of expresses all of those things at the same time. I mean, it's it really is the fitting way for Jesus to die for our sins because of all of those things together. And we shouldn't overlook that when we are contemplating the cross. Very good. This has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out at wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills, here with Zell and Heidi and David Apple. God love you, and God bless. A generous wrestler, virile and strong, does not himself choose his antagonists, lest it should be thought that of some of them he is afraid. Rather, he lets the spectators choose them, and that all the more if they are hostile. 
so that he may overthrow whomsoever they match against him, and thus vindicate his superior strength. Even so it was with Christ. He, the life of all, our Lord and Savior, did not arrange the manner of his own death, lest he should seem to be afraid of some other kind. No, he accepted and bore upon the cross a death inflicted by others, and those others his special enemies, a death which to them was supremely terrible, and by no means to be faced. And he did this in order that by destroying even this death, he might himself be believed to be the life, and the power of death be recognized as finally annulled. St. Athanasius on the Incarnation.